This morning, our reading can be found on page 5 in the Church Bibles. Page 5, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. The Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of our Lord. Uh, two weeks ago, the people of the Republic of Ireland, ERA, voted in a referendum to legislate to allow for same-sex couples to marry. In an opinion piece in the Irish Independent newspaper, the writer wondered what had changed in Ireland over the previous 20 years. You see, in 1995, they had a referendum, and um, the people overwhelmingly rejected the uh, referendum, which would have legalised divorce in Ireland. And yet, 20 years later, they voted 64% in favour of uh, legislating for same-sex marriage. And he, he was wondering, this is a secular, middle-of-the-road kind of uh, newspaper, like our Independent. Um, in a country where 90% of the people are educated in Catholic schools, you know, what had changed? Because in 1995, only a handful of constituencies in the Dublin area had voted in favour of divorce legislation, whereas in 2015, only a handful of constituencies in the rural central part of Ireland hadn't voted. They voted against same-sex marriage. And he came up with two suggestions, which I found interesting as I read them. He said, first of all, the church had failed to teach about marriage, and its members, quote, that's quoting him, didn't exactly go home and read the Bible for themselves. And secondly, was the loss of credibility in the church, and particularly in the clerical hierarchy, with the awful stories of child abuse and the fathering of children by Roman Catholic clergy whilst professing to be celibate. Now, it's not a funny issue at all, but the popular distortion in Ireland of the Catholic confession, Father, forgive me, 
for I have sinned by the penitent parishioner is now widely kind of distorted and in popular culture expressed as forgive me sinners for I have fathered by the Catholic priest. So that says it all really. What we have to do in the light of, uh, of that is we must teach about marriage so that we're not ignorant and we must live credible biblical lives so that we're not hypocrites. So, today in the human journey, we are looking at the Bible's teaching and the tradition of the church in its marriage liturgy about what marriage is. There's no doubt that marriage is um, going badly wrong in our country, particularly in our country. We have four in ten marriages ending in divorce. We have three million adults who've been through divorce in the past 10 years. We have uh, 3,000 children a week experiencing their parents' divorce and 150,000 children a year. That is new. Of course, it's worse because so many couples cohabit rather than marry, so the breakup of relationships involving children is far greater. So, for example, uh, 88,000 children of cohabitors experience the separation of their parents. And 31,000 children of married parents experience the divorce of their parents. If a child, uh, its chances of its parents uh, being together by its fifth birthday look like this. If their parents are cohabiting when it was uh, born, it's got a kind of 48% chance. If the parents marry after the child is born, their chances of staying together go up to 75%. If they were married before they were born, it's more like 92%. And when you ask teenagers today, this is what they want. They want a lifelong marriage. And most of them fear infidelity and family breakup. And there is an enormous cost to divorce. There is the social cost to our society and what other people have to do in picking up pieces. There's emotional cost to those individuals involved. There are educational costs on average, children who've been through that. Again, on average, there are glorious exceptions to averages, but on average, they will be disadvantaged. The same would be true about health and behaviour. And the financial cost. In 2000, it was £15 billion a year, according to a parliamentary select committee. It's probably double that now. So our response as Christian people is to improve our own marriages so as to provide a better example for the next generation to follow. But before we set about doing that for ourselves, we need to remind ourselves what marriage is all about. And to that, we turn, of course, to Scripture, to the Maker's instructions. We also turn to the marriage service to remind ourselves what we signed up to if we were married in the Church of England. Or even if you weren't, I've noticed when I go to non Church of England weddings, that they nick our liturgy completely. But anyway, we don't uh, mind. Um, so, we start off from the 
that verse, Genesis 2:24, that we had read to us. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Well, that's kind of the ancient version, um, but uh, they just change un- cleave for united. So let's analyse this then. It's a man and his wife. So being a man and his wife immediately rules out polygamy, one man and many wives. It it rules out polyandry, which is one woman with many husbands. And it rules out homosexual and lesbian partnerships. Now as we've covered that particular thing on... uh, many on, a, on other occasions. I just simply this morning recommend two particular books which have been published uh, in the last sort of three years. The first is uh, Biblical and Pastoral Responses to Homosexuality, edited by Andrew Goddard and Don Horrocks and published by the Evangelical Alliance. And the second one, that, that's uh, seven pounds, the, the second one is by Andrew Goddard again, who is an ethicist. He's an Anglican minister, and he's quite an expert in ethics. And Glyn Harrison, who is, uh, the men will particularly know, but he did come and do one of our science and faith talks. He um, is the Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at Bristol University. And together they've put together a booklet, two pounds, by the Christian Medical Fellowship. It's Unwanted Same-Sex Attraction, Issues of Pastoral and counselling support, and they either are or will be available on the bookstore. Now, uh, note particularly in Genesis, in this blueprint that was given before the fall, before everything went God, in other words, it's God's norm, it's his standard, it's what he wants. And also note that that leave, cleave, become one flesh was endorsed by Jesus in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and those three. And in some cases, kind of more than once in those particular gospels. So that means that Jesus recognizes that as God's norm. So we've identified the candidates for marriage. What's involved in getting married? So back to the blueprint. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall become one flesh. Leave, cleave, become one flesh. So three steps. There is leaving. So the couple leave their father and mother. That's a public event. That's why in the Church of England, marriages can only take place between the hours of 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. So if you were to book a 4 p.m. wedding, don't be late. And the reason for that is, is that um, those are, if you like, the daylight hours. So that anybody going by can see that a wedding is taking place. Anybody can attend a wedding. You don't have to be invited to attend the service because it's meant to be public so that the community recognise that there is a new social unit being formed. It means that that man and that woman are no longer on the marriage market. They are a new unit in society. 
And at that marriage ceremony, there is a transferring of primary relationships. Until we're married, our primary relationship is to our parents. On getting married, our primary relationship transfers to our partner. For the husband, his wife is now the most important person in the world. And for the wife, her husband is now the most important person in the world. And even when children come along, that is still the case. So leaving. Next one is the quaint word cleaving. So a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. It is a lovely old word. In Hebrew, it literally means to be glued to. So you've heard me probably say this before. In the nicest possible way, a man and his wife are stuck with each other. Then there's one flesh. Now, a unique relationship, such as marriage, has a unique physical expression. Because we have bodies, um, all our social relationships have some degree of physical expression, even if it's kind of, you know, stand off and don't make contact. But if you see somebody for the first time and you're being polite, you might shake hands. If they're a particularly good friend, you might um, embrace them politely. If they're a long-lost friend or family member, you might indulge in a great big bear hug. And if you're married, then you will have a unique ex physical expression to your unique social relationship. In other words, that for the varying different categories of social relationship, there are different categories of physical expression appropriate to those relationships. To mix them up is to get confused as to what kind of relationship you're in and also to devalue those relationships. So saving sexual intercourse for marriage means has great advantages. You won't get any sexually transmitted infections. You won't have guilt, at least not for that. You'll have no hang-ups and you'll have no comparisons. And the expected outcome is children. So marriage is an exclusive, monogamous, heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman, preceded by the public leaving of parents, issuing in a permanent partnership, and normally blessed with children. So note that marriage is unchanging. It was created before the fall. What he said, what he kind of set up then, is God's uncorrupted ideal. And that ideal is in fact universal. Levi Strauss is a, was a French anthropologist, a leading anthropologist of the 20th century, not a Christian, probably a secular Jew by background. His observation of studying numerous societies, primitive and modern around the world, came to this, that um, he says it is marriage is, is based on a union, more or less durable, but socially approved, of two individuals of opposite sexes who establish a household and bear and raise children. It's in the natural order of things. It is so widely prevalent. Attempts, whether it's in 
Israeli kibbutz systems of the 1950s and 60s, or whether it's in the sort of Soviet experiment of the 1920s, they don't last very long. It is not natural for human beings to be living outside of heterosexual uh, marriage. Now, when you got married, what did you sign up for? Well, let me remind you, whether you were married according to the Book of Common Prayer or the alternative service book that kind of reigned for about 20 years or common worship. This is a case when the, actually the oldest version of the service is perhaps the clearer because it uses rather stark kind of Anglo-Saxon language. And it was written by guys who were largely, who, who were celibate, but through the Reformation, they came to realize they could both be a minister of the church and married. And this is what they wrote. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted of God in the time of man's innocency. In other words, before the fall, before he became guilty. Signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought at Cana in Galilee, and is commended by St. Paul to be honourable among all men, and therefore is not to be uh, not by any to be enterprised nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly or wantonly, to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites like brute beasts that have no understanding, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, duly considering the causes for which holy matrimony was ordained. So, signifying unto us a mystical union betwixt Christ and his church. The Catholic writer Chris West writes, God made us as sexual beings, as men and women, with a desire for union, precisely to tell the story of his love for us. He says, in the biblical view, the fulfillment of love between the sexes is a great foreshadowing of something quite literally out of this world. The infinite bliss and ecstasy that awaits us in heaven. Now think about it. The whole thing, the whole story of the Bible, from the, the first or second page to the, to the penultimate and last page, has this. It starts with the marriage of a man and a woman and its consummation in Genesis 1 and 2. And its great narrative ends with the marriage of the bridegroom to his bride and its consummation in Revelation 21 and 22. The first marriage between Adam and Eve and all marriages which follow are there to point us to how things will end with the eternal marriage of the divine bridegroom, God in Christ, to his chosen human bride, God's people. As Ed Shaw, in his uh, book, The Plausibility Problem, The Church and Same-Sex Attraction, writes, all of human history is just the journey up the aisle. The whole of human history 
is just the journey up the aisle. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave her himself up for her. The reformers got that from the Apostle Paul, from Ephesians 5.25, where it means that Christ sacrificed his life for the eternal benefit of us, and we in turn love, honour, and submit to him. So applied to marriage, husbands take the lead and give up sacrifice even, their best interests for the well-being of their wives, and the wives in turn love, honour, and submit. Now that's the model that we should constantly follow and which we quite clearly neglect at our peril. But of course there are a number of uh, ways in which the church today is in error and the ways in which the Bible is misunderstood or this position that is the traditional one uh, is misunderstood. So I just... Uh, flag up the error and flag up two misunderstandings. And I'll do so simply by reading out John Stott's comments on these three areas for your reflection and hopefully your clarification with no comment other than that uh, obviously I think he's right. So male headship, which is often tried to uh, be explained away, Stott says, all attempts to get rid of Paul's teaching on male headship on the grounds that it is mistaken, confusing, culture-bound or culture-specific must be pronounced unsuccessful. It remains stubbornly there. It's rooted in divine revelation, not human opinion, and in divine creation, not human culture. In essence, therefore, it must be preserved as having permanent and universal authority. Or headship and responsibility. To quote him again. On the one hand, headship must be compatible with equality. For if the head of the woman is man, as the head of Christ is God, then man and woman must be equal, as the father and son are equal. On the other hand, headship implies some degree of leadership, which, however, is expressed not in terms of authority, but of responsibility. Or submission and obedience. Stott again. In my view, the 1662 prayer book, that's the Book of Common Prayer, marriage service was wrong to include the word obey in the bride's vows. The concept of a husband who issues commands and of a wife who gives him obedience is simply not found in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter's actual instructions to wives is the same as Paul's, namely be submissive to your husbands. A wife's submission is something quite different from obedience. It is a voluntary self-giving to a lover whose responsibility is defined in terms of constructive care. It is love's response to love. Well, let's turn and duly consider, as it says in the Book of Common Prayer, the causes for which matrimony was ordained. First, it was ordained for the procreation of children, to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and to the praise of his holy name. 
The procreation of children is the natural and right expectation of any young couple getting married. If either party does not want children, they should discuss and agree that prior to any engagement. Brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord is primarily the task of parents, but not exclusively so. One of the great benefits of children growing up in a church family, and the church family is really only an extension of the human nuclear family, one of the benefits of growing up in a larger church family with people of all ages is that the kids can actually get to observe they don't do it clinically, I don't think, or even analytically, but they, they notice as they grow up the lives of different people and how they live the Christian life. And they can be single people, they can be married without children, they can be married with children, they can be you know, other children. But they learn, and I know from my own children, that they, they have clearly learned from watching and engaging in the lives of a good number of you. So all of us actually have a role to play in, the, uh, fear, in, in children being brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord. Secondly, it was ordained for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication, that such persons have not the gift of continency, might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. Now you may have thought that continency was to do with your waterworks when you're in the nursing home, but these guys, who have a lovely way of putting things, they understand it as a word used about sexual self-discipline long before you get to the old folks' home. And as the vows emphasise, forsaking all others, keep thee unto her. And thirdly, it was ordained for the mutual society help and comfort that one ought to have for the other, both in prosperity and adversity as the vows emphasise, in sickness and in health. So, how do we apply what we have learnt from uh, these two sources, the Bible and the marriage service which is based on the Bible? Well, quite simply, we need to improve our own marriages to provide better examples for the next generation. As a church, we have a number of ways of doing that. We have a marriage course, which is run now about twice a year. About a dozen couples gather together. They watch a DVD of the marriage course. And then over dinner for two, with suitable background music, so you can't hear what people are saying on other tables, just you know, exclusively yourself, and candles, um, they talk over just between themselves. Another thing is another couple in our church go into schools as part of students exploring marriage, which is well worth doing if anybody feels up to it. And others in the church run Divorce Recovery Workshop, a similar DVD-based course to help those who have been through the pain of divorce to uh, discuss and share their journey through it with others. So let's remind ourselves as we close what biblical marriage and the marriage service is all about. So in scripture we saw that a man leaves, cleaves, become one's flesh and children are the expected outcome. And in the service itself we see that it is public, that it's for companionship, sex 
and children. And marriage is the relationship. The marriage is a model of the relationship between Christ and us Christians. To quote Ed Shaw again, all human history is just the journey up the aisle, which I guess is why Martin Luther was able to say of marriage that it was the nearest thing to heaven on earth. Well, let me pray as we close. In the marriage service, there um, is a prayer for children and for them being brought up as Christians and one that we model our marriages on Christ's relationship in the church and in so doing express the faith and enter eternal life. So let me pray those for us. Merciful Father, by your gracious gift, mankind is increased. Give to this couple the blessing of children and grant them wisdom, grace, and health to bring their children up in the faith and goodness to your praise and glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And Almighty God, you have consecrated marriage as a sign of the union between Christ and his church. In your mercy, grant that this husband loves and cherishes his wife as Christ loved the church, and that his wife may be loving and submit to her husband as the church does to Christ. Grant that in their marriage they may learn more of your love and inherit your eternal kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.